Hello, I'm Jesse Hansen, and this is the Humankind Podcast. This is a show about humanity, where we hear from people from every stage and walk of life, where we get a chance to tap into raw, real, and open conversations about what it means to be human and how knowing that might help us all be just a little more kind. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Hansen, and I am beyond thrilled to have a very dear friend joining me today who is quite simply incredible. Her name is Justine Abigail Yu. She's based in Toronto, Canada, and she is a fierce and outspoken advocate for equity, anti-oppression, and social justice. In her amazing career, she's helped young people learn to travel with purpose. She's helped raise awareness about how social media and journalism can promote and support human rights. She's a seasoned speaker, storyteller, and now the founder and editor-in-chief of a fantastic publication, Living Hyphen, which we'll hear more about in just a minute. And this is only a sliver of the amazingness that makes Justine Justine. She's also an amazing dancer. If you've ever followed her on TikTok, you will know that's true. She's a sassy, savvy social media maven and so much more. And we met years ago as co-presenters on a panel at the Women in Travel Summit, where we are talking about how we can all do less harm and more good as we see the world. Thank you so much for joining me today, Justine. Jesse, that introduction. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I know. That's why I don't tell you what I'm going to intro you with. But Thank you so much. Wow. Let's highlight my dancing. <laughs> I obsessed with your TikTok, but we have serious things to talk about, but we'll try to, we'll try to bring. <laughs> no, <it>. let's not. <laughs> Thank um, you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. And beyond being just an incredible friend that I feel very grateful to know, I learned so much from every chat that we have, every post I see from you, every time I hear you speak on important issues uh, like racism, indigenous rights, and oppression. And I'm wondering, can you share your background and your journey of how you became this incredible racial and social justice advocate? My gosh, I don't, I don't know where to start. Where <laughs> it's a long story, but I think where it all really began um, was in university. I originally wanted to become a journalist, and I had found this internship with an organization here in Toronto called Journalists for Human Rights. And I had applied for a social media internship um, at the time that was 2008, 2009 or so. And this was this was a really new time for social media to be used by businesses, by organizations to speak to a wider audience about the work that they do. And I I still am not really sure how I got that internship other than I was very young at the time and probably uh, well-versed, more well-versed than the people who were working at that organization. But it really opened a whole world for me that I had never considered before. I originally applied for that internship because it's it's a media organization that trains local journalists from, at the time, primarily sub-Saharan Africa. They've since expanded. They would take veteran journalists and have them train local journalists. And I thought that was my in into the media world. And so I took this internship, not recognizing that the nonprofit sector, international development is actually a whole other world that I had never considered at that age before. And so it really opened my eyes that there were other ways that I can contribute my writing skills and my critical thinking in a way that wasn't necessarily 
you know, the clear cut journalism, I'm going to write route. You know, there are other ways to do that. And so that's where it all really began. And that's where I first had my first brush with international development and what it means to work with communities around the world in a way that's ethical and responsible and really thoughtful and intentional. That's the first step. And then, you know, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happened afterwards. But I guess that's the first experience that I had that really changed me. I love that. And I actually didn't even uh, know about that that was an internship for you. And it seems like it had yeah. such a an impression and help kind of guide where your next steps um, went. And I wonder just in being someone who is so fantastic at using your power and your voice and the, and the power of storytelling um, to help raise awareness about important issues and um, promote the rights of minority groups and things like that. Um, are there any individuals or movements or moments that you can think of? Um, I can think of a few for me as, as a kid um, learning oddly about Mother Teresa, Gandhi, like Martin Luther King Jr., um, Nelson Mandela, and and yeah. more recently, we were just talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, oh, idol. Um, are there any people that have influenced your path or like movements or moments that that kind of guided you this direction? To be honest, I have been thinking about that question and I don't know if I was really attuned to that as a younger person, as a child growing up. I think a lot of my learning or my awakening to anti-oppression and social justice really came later in my life, in my university years and in my early 20s and onwards. I think that's where it really started. And there isn't one particular individual, like notable, significant um, figure that I can recall or that I could call to. But when I thought about this question, I really thought about my experience working with this particular organization called Operation Groundswell, which is actually how, how I guess we first got to know each other. I was working with them. Operation Groundswell is a nonprofit organization that facilitates experiential education programs all around the world um, with programs that focus on specific social justice issues. So for example, um, you know, gender rights, let's say, or environmental sustainability, we would have these particular issues go into certain countries, let's say Guatemala or, or India. There's so many different places that we went to. And we would actually meet with different educators, activists, um, artists, other nonprofit organizations, and local communities to learn from them about the work that they were doing in regards to that particular social justice issue. And that experience, while it's not a specific person, because I feel like there were so many individuals who, are, who were a part of that entire experience, that really shaped my thinking and kind of like spun this whole idea of, you know, we're so used to seeing these trips where you go abroad and you see, you know, typically uh, wealthier or privileged Western youth going abroad to, to build a well or build a school or do something for a local community um, claiming to quote unquote help that particular community without ever actually listening to the locals about what it is that they need and and that and Operation Groundswell really challenged that kind of thinking for me and 
showed me that there are these local organizers, these community builders, these leaders who are doing that work all by themselves, who know so intimately what the context is, what the cultural uh, nuances of that particular place is, and they will know how to solve these problems far better than we will ever know as outsiders. And so learning from people and actually listening from people, that's something that I learned through my time working with this organization. And there are just so many different people who have been a part of building that, whether it is our local partners. I should note that I still say our, even though I have left working for Operation Groundswell for years now. And it's just... it just speaks to how formative that experience was for me, you know, whether it was our local partners, the program leaders, actual staff who were all so well-versed in questions around anti-oppression and social justice. You know, we were certainly not perfect, but we were all so invested and committed to understanding our role and responsibility in dismantling a lot of these systems of oppression that's a lot. <laughs> I don't know what you'll do with that, but I love it. And and actually one on saying R, I do it all, all the, the time, time. <laughs> for groups that I still feel yeah. a part of. And I have come to accept it. You know, I, I talk about Kiva. I was there for six years. It's my family. Yeah. Uh it, it will always be a part of me. So I totally understand the use yeah. of, of um, it will always be a part of me. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. And I think what is so fascinating is that you are someone who has been involved in, in trying to help move forward this conversation about how do we become, you know, anti-racist and, and more accepting of one another and like all of that. Uh, and yet this past summer, you were sitting in a park, reading a book and something terrible happened. Um, and I, I wonder if you would mind sharing a bit about what happened uh, in that moment and then also what followed. Yes, it was. So where do I start? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so over the summer, I was sitting in a park just reading and a woman approached me and basically told me that I was trespassing. And I didn't really take it seriously. So I just looked at her and said, okay, thank you. I know that I wasn't because this is a park that I have frequented before. And I've seen plenty of people sitting in the park. There are park benches for people presumably to sit on. And so I ignored it, continued reading, And this woman didn't leave. And she said to me, there are signs everywhere here that say no trespassing. Can't you see? Can't you read? Or do you not understand? Or do you not speak English? And I was stunned in the moment that she said that to me. I have never experienced such explicit racism before. I think I'm fortunate to never have experienced that. Of course, I've experienced a lot of microaggressions, but nothing as blatant or explicit as that. She even went on to actually threaten to call the police on me for trespassing. And I asked her, okay, but you're here as well. Aren't you trespassing? And she said, yes, but I'm a teacher. And I said, does that does that negate the trespassing? <laughs> uh, does that negate trespassing? And she basically left and 
She started yelling at me, swearing at me. And then I'm trying to recall exactly what happened at this point, but I know that she had come back. I started actually filming. Unfortunately, we are living in a world where apparently you have to film your experiences of racial harassment or violence for you to be taken seriously. This actually happened in late July, right after everything that was happening with the Black Lives Matter movement with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And so it it almost became an instinct to start filming, which feels so surreal that that is something that we have to do now. But anyway, I started filming and she was continuing to pace back and forth near me um, and basically started yelling out saying all Chinese people should go to jail. And she continued to pace back and forth, just watching me as if, I don't know, patrolling or policing my, my being in that space. And so I was really, really rattled. Eventually she left. I was super rattled by the entire experience. I started questioning if I was trespassing, if I did actually have a right to be there. And I started worrying what would happen if she did call the police? Would I get in trouble? I have never had any encounters with the police. And so I just started to get really nervous and I decided to actually leave. And I, you know, days later or a day later, I decided to post the video that I managed to capture on my Instagram to show people what had happened to me. You know, I think since the onset of COVID-19, we've also seen a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. And so I couldn't believe that I was experiencing it myself. I had heard all of these stories, read the headlines and all of these things, but never, I'd never experienced it myself. And so I decided to post it. I decided to post it, especially because she had told me that she's a teacher and I found it to be incredibly disturbing and harmful that somebody who has power in front of a classroom, in front of young minds, I don't know what grade she teaches, but regardless, young minds who are potentially being harmed during their classes. You know, I don't know how she translates those feelings, those anti-Asian sentiments or anti, I don't know what other (laughs) racist beliefs she might hold. So yeah, I posted it in hopes that someone would help me identify this woman and that I could go through the appropriate avenues to hold her accountable, whether that was through the teacher's board here in Canada, of which I didn't know anything about at the time, but have had to learn about and have had to navigate. (laughs) Yeah. I still am just like truly infuriated that that happened. I'm grateful that you are safe and fine and that she was not physically aggressive. I am mortified that she was so verbally aggressive and I am with you. I love that you pointed out she's an educator and and everyone is accountable for how they treat other people. Um, But thinking about educators that are influencing young people, molding their minds on what is appropriate, um, correct, acceptable adult behavior um, and modeling that for them And just as you said, you know, how are children of color being treated in her classroom? Um, So beyond just the one-to-one issue between of her harassing you, um, it does raise the bigger issue. And she, she offered that information that she was a teacher um, that 
has become a sticking point, I think, for both you and I, because we care about young people and we understand how important it is for them to have good role models um, on how to treat people ethically and kindly. And um, so I'm so sorry you had to go through any of that. Um, And there was response from your community. I feel like yeah, I remember signs on that park and and you were interviewed. Can you share a little about what happened afterwards? Yeah, it turned into a much bigger experience than I could have ever imagined. I didn't expect it when I posted that story, but a lot of media outlets here in Canada um, picked it up and shared it um, through radio or TV or newspaper just to tell that story of what had happened to me. And yeah, it went viral, um, I guess is what we would call it these days, which is a strange, strange experience. I received a lot of supportive comments, honestly, a lot of really wonderful messages from people in the community who I frankly don't know, they're strangers, but reached out to me to express their solidarity with me and express even their own experiences of what they have encountered and sharing with me, sharing with me a lot of these human stories um, that I don't think we so readily share because I think as racialized people, we tend to just brush it aside and say, oh, you know, this is just how it is around here. And for me, I couldn't do that, especially given the work that I do. I felt that I owed it to myself, first of all, but also the communities that I am a part of to speak out about this issue. And so, yeah, I, it was really wonderful when I revisited that park. Um, I saw that there were signs um, posted by the fence. It's a, it's a school area. So there was a fence there and there were folks in the community who had said, you know, you're welcome here, miss you. Um, anti-racism is not something that we stand for. And so it was really great to see, especially because that community, I mean, not especially, I think it goes regardless of what community you are part of, but it is a very multicultural community. We live in Toronto where, you know, their visible minorities are actually the majority (laughs) um, here in Toronto. And so it's just it's unacceptable. It really was unacceptable to me. And so it was great to see that community support. But I will also say that I received a ton of hateful comments as well, which is why it was incredibly scary to me because these people were sharing really hateful comments towards me saying, you should go back to China. You, you know, oh, you're Filipino. You're not even Chinese. Why don't you go clean a room or something? And just spewing out all of these other stereotypes from the Filipino community that are incredibly harmful and damaging. And so again, back to, I guess, that pendulum swinging that we were talking about earlier, some days it's a good day. And then you have comments like this coming at you that also feel just absolutely terrible. And so definitely got both sides of that. And so we were able to identify this woman and based on that, did find out that she is a registered teacher here in Ontario. And so I decided to file a formal complaint with the Ontario College of Teachers because she is a, le- a licensed and registered teacher. And so I'm just waiting now to see what will happen, what action they might be taking, um, given the evidence that I have, have shown or have, I've shared with them. Well, thank goodness you captured the video because that is so key. Um, and I, it hurts my heart to know that 
you were so brave to share what had happened to you. And it is important that we're holding people accountable. Um, so I'm so glad that you have continued to do that, even when people have sent you hateful comments. Um, and it brought to mind my my first hateful emails from strangers, which was a very long time ago. It was probably tw- almost 20 years ago now. I was working for the Women's Refugee Commission and we did all kinds of programs trying to help child soldiers and victims of human trafficking. And I, I was very entry level. So I was dealing with a lot of just the general incoming, responding to emails, press questions, things like that. And I got one, my first email and I received many more after, but this was the first one. So I think it stuck with me was a guy that just said, oh, you're helping these immigrants and refugees, I hope you get raped and your mom gets raped. And if you have kids, I hope they all get raped too. And I was just like, what? <laughs> what? All of this is, is, is because I'm, I'm trying to help refugee and immigrant populations. And it helped me begin the journey of realizing like that person has so much pain and anger in them. Um, it doesn't excuse them saying those things but it does change my heart. Like that attack is not about me and it's not about the work that I'm doing. It's about a person who has not learned to love themselves and learned to love others around them and learned to love the world that they live in. And it just makes me more like sad and wanting to help change that and make them feel loved and make them see that those around them deserve that love as well. Um, And so I hope that you take any of the harsh comments and realize none of it is about you. Uh, it is about that person's life experience that has not been good and for whatever reason. And, and just all we can do is like wish for those people to heal and yeah. be able to approach the world with more love. And it's um, interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things that really struck me with a lot of the comments that I was seeing was of course, there were hate, hateful comments towards me, but towards this woman as well, who, of course, I don't have any affection for her, the way she treated me, but the comments of how we should ruin her life, let's find out who this woman is, and it became just such toxic thinking of focusing on this one person and the harm that she did to me, which while, again, she personally hurt me, so I'm not her biggest fan, but to me, I just kept thinking about how she is a product of this wider system. You know, where did she even get these ideas of hating Asian folks, of hating Chinese people in particular? Where did that come from? You know, because we channeled so much of our energy into finding this one person, making sure she's held accountable. But again, she's just one case. You know, we have heard all of these stories of anti-Asian hatred and racism of anti-blackness in our communities all of this is interconnected with each other with this grander system of oppression that is white supremacy and so how do we how, how do we i am more interested in that in actually addressing the systemic issue as opposed to the individual for this case the accountability piece about her being a teacher is really important to me because I feel she is contributing to the overall system by educating young minds. But more generally, yeah, how do we change the system so that this kind of thinking doesn't spread amongst other individuals, which is a hard question, (laughs) but that's where I would prefer to channel my energy and what I've, yeah, what I have been working towards. 
Little did this woman know that you had already been working so, you know, steadily towards trying to create change in understanding and acceptance in the, in the wider system. And one of the ways that you've been doing that is through founding and being the editor-in-chief of Living Hyphen. Can you share what Living Hyphen is and where that idea came from? Yes. So Living Hyphen is a community that explores the experiences of people who live in between cultures as hyphenated Canadians. So that's anyone who calls Canada home, but who might have roots elsewhere. It was primarily a Canadian-based community or initiative because I myself am Canadian, but since the last few years, we've actually quite expanded and have an audience as well in the States. And so, you know, I, I'd like to broaden that idea of hyphenated people with hyphenated identities. And so I myself am Filipina Canadian. I was born in the Philippines, but I moved to Canada when I was just four years old. And so I always say that my life has been this push and pull between these two different places and people and cultures. And while I have certainly spent most of my life here in Canada, I still have such strong roots to the Philippines, to my heritage there, my culture there, and our traditions. And so I wanted to explore, I wanted to explore that in community. You know, I I grew up in the greater Toronto area with friends who have roots in all different parts around the world. And so I knew that while we all have our very specific cultural nuances, I also recognize that our experiences are very similar and that that hyphenated experience, that living in between cultures is actually a universal experience for so many people. And I'm a writer. And so my main format or my main medium is through my writing. And so I thought, why not create this space of a magazine, which is how we actually first emerged as a magazine. Why don't I create this magazine that really prioritizes the voices of underrepresented communities from people who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of color. And so we launched our first magazine back in 2018 and have since grown quite a bit to actually also provide cultural programming by way of writing workshops and storytelling nights. And so really working with diverse communities to cultivate their storytelling practice and their their writing practice, because I feel that as underrepresented communities, we are told by the influences and the institutions around us that our stories don't matter or our stories are not enough or they're not worth publishing or, you know, putting being put into TV or movies or things like that. And so I really am working to dismantle that kind of thinking and trying to show people that our voices are so important. Our stories are incredibly powerful and that we should be so proud to share it widely. And so that's something that I've been focusing a lot on over the last two, three years now. (laughs) Well, as a Thai hyphen American, I very much appreciate your work. Exactly. uh, Yes, I know. (laughs) And I could not agree with you more. Like I think some of the richest, most beautiful stories are cultures coming together uh, and creating a next generation. And those generations carry the richness of both of those traditions and backgrounds forward. And it just continues to grow as, as people become more multicultural. Um, so I love this focus of yours. If people want to get a copy, how would they do that? 
Yes. So you can find our magazine at living-ca. It's available for purchase online for 30 Canadian dollars and we ship all around the world. So definitely check us out. We're also on social at, at living hyphen. Amazing. Um, and then the other side of this is I so respect the ability to take an amazing idea and, and bring it into life. Like this was, was an idea that is now a tangible thing that people can hold in their hands. And I wonder, um, what did it take to take a beautiful idea that you have and like create a real thing in the world? Was it a hard journey? Um, and what recommendation would you have for someone that maybe has a great idea now and wants to do the same? I will say if I could mention that I've wanted to do something like this for a very long time, but the spark of it was I had attended this panel from um, this organization called the Feminist Art Collective here in Toronto. And they had put on this panel that was featuring the voices of writers and publishers of color. And this panel was discussing just how difficult it was to get their work published here in Canada because, because, well, it is still a white dominated industry. And so while there has been more openness to share stories from diverse writers, there's still a very narrow conception of what those stories look like. And so there was this one woman, she's Japanese Canadian, and she was born here in Canada. And her story was about similarly this in-between place and this push and pull between Japan and Canada. And when she submitted her manuscript, the editor had told her, or had given her a response saying that her story was not really Japanese enough, quote unquote, Japanese enough, at which she was shocked because she didn't understand what that could mean, you know, and she was just so baffled that she, as someone who is Japanese, identifies as Japanese, was being told that she was not Japanese enough by this white editor. And when I heard that, it really scared me because, one, as a Filipina Canadian, as a writer, that's something that I write a lot about, about my identity, about my culture and things like that. And so to have the prospect of someone telling me that was something that really scared me which is why ultimately that is the spark for starting living hyphen that I didn't want to wait for somebody to let me in. You know, I was not, I'm so impatient, you know, I don't want to wait for that. And so I decided to do it on my own, but I will tell you that it took two years before I actually put it out because for the longest time I was asking a lot of people, Oh, you know, does something like this already exist? Because if it does, then I'm not going to do it. I just want to support the, the publication or the community that's already amplifying these voices. And it wasn't until this one person told me, Justine, so what if this space already exists? You know, how many magazines exist for health and fitness and celebrity gossip? And nobody tells them to stop making those. If anything, we should just have more spaces for these underrepresented voices so that they can contribute to multiple places. And that was another aha moment for me that I had been living, I guess, in this mentality of scarcity that if there is one space dedicated to Filipino Canadians or other immigrant communities or diasporic communities, then that's enough. But when she presented it to me that way, that there are so many magazines on XYZ, 
why would I limit myself? And when I heard that, that really inspired me. And I decided to just put it on my Facebook and I put out a call for submissions for anyone who had stories, illustrations, artwork, whatever that touched on this topic of living in between cultures. And I did not expect the response that I received, you know, within, within a month, I got over 200 submissions from all across Canada. And it was proof for me that there is a hunger for these kinds of stories in a space like this. And so I, I, I will tell you, it just took a lot of time for me to actually put it out there. And I do want to acknowledge that this is a print magazine, which costs money. And I am very privileged to have had my mom who is very much a part of the living hyphen team. I'm very privileged to have had her really believe in this idea and be so supportive that she actually backed financially this project, which is not something that everyone has access to, which is why I want to always bring that up because it's, it is a privilege that I have, you know, and print is very expensive and, and I don't think I would have been able to do that without her. And so I'm extremely grateful for my mom. I'm also extremely grateful of the relationship that we've been able to develop doing this work together. And yeah, in terms of tips, I, I think anyone who has an idea should go for it. You know, if, if I know that sounds very floofy and not exactly a concrete tip, but take it day by day. You know, for me, the first step was putting up a website and making it real and then sharing it with my community. And I don't know how much time I actually spent on the end product because to be perfectly frank, I don't have an experience in publishing and I had no idea what the hell I was doing throughout this entire process, but I just took it day by day. You know, even if it was for me, if I was able to put together a small zine with contributions from maybe 10, 15 people who were in my network that was interested in this, that was enough for me at that point. You know, I could not have expected the growth that I've, I've seen through this community. And so I guess in terms of concrete terms, taking it day by day and just taking it step by step and figuring it out along the way, because that is certainly what I have had to do over the course of this entire time. And I still don't really know what I'm doing or how this will grow or what will become of it. A lot of it is experimenting. A lot of it is really relying on my community to share what they are looking for, what they want to see, and listening to to the people who are a part of this thing that we are building together. I think that is all incredible advice. And as someone who has met and adores your mom, that piece of the story is so sweet and adorable to me. And, and just watching the two of you together, you can see how much pride there is and love and support. Um, so I love that, that nugget of history. Um, and also even just hearing the piece about, you know, worrying that the space is crowded is something that I struggle with, with this. I'm like humans of New York exist. This American life exists. Like why, what is there left to say, but there's so much left to say. There's so many perspectives and stories left to be told. Um, So it's very reaffirming and encouraging to hear that piece of advice and your concrete piece. There is space for all of us. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, Jesse, if, 
I mentioned this before, but if just one person listens to this podcast and shifts their thinking somehow or becomes curious about another topic that they may not have that they might not have had to consider before, I think that is worth it all. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel so fortunate to have conversations with inspiring, informed people. And I always think, oh, I I had this great chat with Justine. I wish I had that on record. I could just share it with everyone because they could all learn from her. And like this podcast gives me that opportunity. So, and I know I have kept you so long because I've been juicily digging into all of your wisdom. Um, but this podcast is all about exploring like humanity and kindness and building empathy. Um, and so I do love to ask people, uh, if you can think of it, what is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you? Mm. The kindest thing that anyone has ever done for me is not a one-time act, to be honest with you. This is for me, it's what Dom has given me. Um, he is somebody who has really taught me how to communicate effectively and healthily. I come from a family where we don't talk about our frustrations with each other or if we are upset about what somebody did. Um, we don't talk about that. And so I have never really had that in a relationship. Usually when I'm upset about something that my partner has done, I keep it to myself and I keep quiet and I just simmer and grow resentment inside of me. But Dom has really taught me how to talk about it and lower the stakes of what those conversations look like. I remember at the beginning of our relationship, I still get nuggets of this or a tinge of this sometimes when we're there is conflict or tension between us and I express it or he expresses it. I get so nervous and so scared that I'm going to lose this relationship or that this is the end or yeah, just really worrying that expressing discontent means that we're going to let this relationship go. And he's taught me that that is not at all the case, you know, and that he needs to know from me where I'm at and how I'm feeling. And so that's something that He's worked with me to develop this this ability to communicate healthily and to not feel so fearful to to address my needs. I think that's something maybe generally women, we women are not really used to expressing, you know, we just kind of keep it to ourselves. That's, of course, a generalization, but I think I think it's a fair one that, you know, we have been taught to not share our needs. And so the kind, yeah, I, I generally, I genuinely believe that that is the kindest thing that anyone has done for me is Dom sharing, sharing this toolkit with me on how to speak to him and how to have a healthy communication relationship with another person. I love that. And what a like long-term gift both to be giving and also to receive that will just like help you throughout your life in conversations that would otherwise be challenging and difficult between people that you care about and yourself. I love it. Um, Well, Justine, thank you (laughs) so much for sharing your time story and thoughts. And before we go, if people want to learn more and follow you, where and how can they do that? You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Justine Abigail. 
and you'll see my charcuts boards and maybe some of my TikTok dancing. Yes, please. <laughs> you'll get more. the whole <laughs> shebang there. <laughs> and you'll learn how to be anti-racist as well. While, 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 also, <laughs> while also enjoying and indulging and really leaning into joy all at once. I love it. I love how much I learn from you but then what a good time I have while doing it. Um, so that just kind of sums up who you are to me. You're just a gem of a human. Uh, you're always making an incredible and positive impact on the world on such an incredible scale. So thank you for all you do and for sharing with us on the podcast today. Thank you, Jesse. This was such a pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, please, please rate, review, share it with your friends. You can also follow us on social media or check out the website at thehumankindproject.net for more. I also want to take a moment to give a special shout out to Chris Chant for making the music for the show, Adam Farmer for creating the logo and artwork, and Greg Benson for being our tireless, amazing audio editor. They are all doing this as a labor of love, and I cannot thank them enough. Thank you all so much for tuning in today and for everything you do every day to make the world more human and more kind. Take care.